We are encountering silence. Encountering silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be a part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Dr. Joy A. Schrader, a Lutheran pastor, specializes in the history of biblical interpretation. She is professor of church history at Trinity Lutheran Seminary and the Department of Religion and Philosophy at Capital University, Columbus, Ohio. A prolific scholar and lecturer, she is the author of Deborah's Daughters, Gender Politics and Biblical Interpretation, and several other books on the history of interpretation of Scripture. Her most recent book, Voices Long Silenced, Women, Biblical Interpreters Through the Centuries, is co-authored with Dr. Marion Ann Taylor. Dr. Joy Schrader, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here with you. I'd like for us to start, as we usually do with all of our guests who come here, we'd like to begin by asking about your relationship with silence. Has there been a special or particular time in your life when you had a meaningful encounter with silence or anything that you feel is relevant here for us to start and to set the stage? What is your relationship with silence? My entire time growing up, uh, when I was a child, uh, after supper, I would usually go to my room and I would read books. I would write in my journal. I would write poetry. Uh, my younger sisters, I have two sisters, they shared a room, but as the oldest, I had a room to myself and that was such a blessing. My room was a sanctuary. And so I just was there in silence all the time, soaking it in as I would read and write. Uh, I later learned that my folks were a little worried when I would kind of disappear. I'd shut the door and uh, and I'd be in my bedroom for hours each evening. But then they figured out that that was just my personality. Um, also, uh, there was a woods beside, uh, behind my house. And so I would wander there in silence. And so it was always uh, like alone with my own thoughts and my imagination. And to this day, I crave that kind of silence. It comes really naturally to me. I know that for others, that may not be the case. But for me, I just soak the silence in. And uh, it just, uh, uh, it feeds me very much. Dr. Schrader, you mentioned that your, your parents, your family was a little worried about that. So I'm wondering, yeah, so clearly that wasn't modeled for you, maybe this going away or this finding this silent space wasn't really modeled for you. So I'm wondering where that came from. And if that was kind of looking back, was that an initial connection with the mystery or with God or with infinite spaciousness in, in said silence? In certain ways, it actually was modeled for me, but I think that amount of length of time and apparent reclusiveness was concerning. My father uh, is a, uh, was a Lutheran minister, uh, so he spent time reading. My mother was a voracious reader. She loved to retreat into her room and read. But when you've got a teenager who disappears for three or four hours in the evening, that's what concerned them. So uh, would, you, would you say, just as a follow-up, since your father was a Lutheran minister and your mother is a writer, it sounds like you've, you've adapted a little both of, of both of your parents here. Is there, is there a connection, do you find, between uh, this sense of maybe 
prayer, spaciousness, nature, writing, is this all of one piece? Or would you say these are aspects of silence that unpacked for you in different ways? Or I'm just kind of curious because it's this fascinating thing to see how we approach silence and how we it's modeled for us and then what we do with it. I was kind of curious how you held that together. Well, my mother, um, who loved uh, to read, and she also would write poetry and short stories and so forth, I think she needed silence. So I don't know the degree to which I inherited that inclination <laughs> um, and also the degree to which it was modeled. So she would like to, uh, she uh, would disappear into her bedroom now and then. We were actually required to take naps when we were children right after lunch until 2 p.m., and I thought it was about uh, us getting an actual nap. And so I felt like I was getting away with something when I would just play quietly in my room or read a picture book or so forth. Uh, and my mother was very strict. You know, you cannot leave your room until, you know, until it's 2 p.m. And then I later realized it was that she needed a little bit of a break from her daughter. She needed the silence and she would be in her room reading. So I think it maybe was uh, uh, how, um, how it was cultivated, but it was also maybe a combination of just, uh, yeah, how I'm wired, but also uh, what was nurtured in my household. So do you find then that this carries over? Is Does silence play a process in your writing then? Because, uh, you know, I was taking a glance at your CV and I was looking at, I mean, you, you have a lot, you've written a lot. You're very, you're prolific. Um, so I'm kind of curious if, the, if this is part of the process for you. Absolutely. Uh, there is a writer by the name of Natalie Goldberg mm -hmm. who wrote a book called Writing Down the Bones. And she developed this idea of something called, that she calls writing practice. And it comes from the Zen Buddhist meditation tradition. And this was uh, taught to me by a local author and teacher named Anita Sweeney. Uh, mm -hmm. So I took m multiple uh, workshops with her. Uh, and uh, she uh, taught me this, uh, uh, taught me this in classes. And uh, she would, you know, actually use a sort of a Tibetan singing bowl to chime you in and chime you out, uh, 10 minute uh, timed writing increments. And so uh, just like one practices meditation a little bit at a time and then stretches, uh, then uh, in the writing practice taught by Natalie Goldberg, you keep the hand moving. Uh, there'll be an editor chattering away at you saying, oh, this is bad, this is terrible, you're stupid, or no one will like this. Uh, but if you keep the hand moving, the editor will never catch up with you. Um, so uh, so I actually, uh, my second book, uh, which is nearly 400 pages, I wrote in 10 minute timed writing increments. And on my phone, I have a little chime. So I set it for 10 minutes and then I write out by longhand and I prefer to do it in silence. I can do it if there's a little bit of white noise. I can't do it if there are audible lyrics or television on or anything with words. Uh, so I find that writing in the silence, uh, I, I learn what it is that I think. Sometimes people think that they have to think and get their thoughts straight first before they can write, but I find I, I, I am able to do my best thinking in the midst of writing. So I treat writing as a form of meditation. I could be misattributing here, but I think it may have been Joan Didion who said that she writes in order to know what she thinks. And 
so what you're saying, you know, sounds so much like that. And I was going to ask you, and you've given me a wonderful kind of low hanging fruit here. I was going to ask you whether you consider writing to be a form of prayer. I think of it more as meditation. Um, I think, but I, I think that the idea of meditation and prayer, those are actually fairly, um, fairly similar. I did spend uh, many of those hours as a child, the journal was oftentimes prayer. And so when I journal, it feels a little bit, it might feel more like prayer when I'm writing other things uh, about things and not to God, then it might be a little bit closer to meditation. Not that I would necessarily draw a hard and fast line between those two. Sounds like a fuzzy boundary. And Joy, in your in your new book, you kind of talk about the flip side of of this beautiful silence we're discussing, right? You talk about the silencing. You talk about toxic silencing. In your book, you you refute the myth that no significant biblical interpreters um, that were women existed before the twentieth century. And I think my question for you in that is, what was the what was the impetus for this book? What was the thing that made you feel that you knew you needed to write this book? Thank you for that question. Uh, my co-author, Marianne Ann Taylor from the University of Toronto is uh, one of the pioneers in the story of history, uh, the history of women as biblical interpreters. So uh, for the last 20 years or so, uh, biblical and biblical scholars have taken an interest in the history of uh, how the Bible, how scripture has been interpreted, especially by Christians and Jews. Uh, and uh, historians had been doing that for decades, but recently biblical scholars uh, took that up. But as my uh, colleague Marion noticed, there were very few women who were acknowledged. There was even a, a, a dictionary of major biblical interpreters with 200, you know, close to 200 men and only three women. So she felt like there was a gap. My own uh, passion since at least the mid 1980s, since I was in seminary, has been to kind of recover the history of women, learn as much about women as I can, especially in Christianity. I've a keen interest in the Middle Ages and the Reformation era. So when I discovered this project that Marion and some other uh, of her colleagues, mostly Canadians, started in the early 2000s, I, um, I ended up attending conferences or sessions at conferences that they uh, that they uh, sponsored, and then I just found this is this is my niche. This is. Uh, what I want to study uh, and uh, one of uh, at least one of the questions that I want to pursue. So it is a book about how women from around 100 or at least 150 of the common era had access to scripture through reading, hearing, uh, hearing it paraphrased, and how they interpreted the Bible through their words, through their music, sometimes through their art, sometimes through their needlework. Uh, through their music and how they interpreted the by uh, through sermons and speeches, and in certain cases it was different than the um, interpretation that men did, especially around the question of Eve, uh, who's responsible for sin. Are all women complicit in that sin of Eve? And what we found again and again is that the women who did the writing, not all of them, but many, if not most. 
uh, especially until the most recent decades, uh, encountered people who said they should not write. And so uh, again and again is the first, it's quoted the first Timothy, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, she's to keep silent. And then the first Corinthians 14, again, someone kind of uh, who's not Paul, but it got interpolated in uh, when, as in all the churches of the saints, women are to keep silence. In this case, the silencing is not what you, you and your podcast, your colleagues are trying to celebrate the voluntary embracing of a life-giving nurturing silence, but in this case, it's a enforced silencing of their voices, their written voice, their physical voice. And in some cases, it even resulted in execution. So um, uh, a, a silencing of them in a very, very literal way. Well, we call that, on this podcast, we call that toxic silence. And those verses you just alluded to, I think those are the mothership for toxic mm -hmm. silence. So, um, you know, that the idea that, um, that you have that actually enshrined in scripture, you know, and when I read that, I read that as uh, exhibit A as to why we, we have to have a postmodern reading of scripture and be willing to deconstruct scripture, because otherwise those verses are terrible in their implication, so. And I read those verses, uh, well, I've never really had that quoted against me, at least not very much or by anyone that I cared about uh, or, or cared what they ha had to say. But um, when I read the part about, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority, I, uh, I read it as uh, that you don't make rules against something unless it's something is already happening or there's a fear that this something, that this might happen. So if there's a, something in first timothy or in first corinthians 14 that says you know the, the women are supposed to be silent uh not teaching that means that there were women teachers that the author is writing against or people that uh women that the uh, male author assumed might be teaching so that's one of the yeah that postmodern reading it against the grain as evidence to kind of recover the history of women yeah, and, and Joy, along with that, I'm really curious if, you know, in, in the silence of your writing, in the silence of your research, in the silence of your pursuit of finding these voices who have been long silenced, uh, did you find any, were, was there any special connection or camaraderie with any particular women that you studied? Um, and, you know, something that, you know, made you feel really close or drawn to their teaching, their words, or their, as you were saying, right, also their art. Um, yeah. Yeah. In most cases, it was the woman I was writing about at the time. Mm. Uh, so uh, again, and uh, again, and again, that happens. But so uh, all of one, them, yeah, all of them uh, in <laughs> one way or another. But one example is an Ethiopian woman named Walata Petros. She was Ethiopian Orthodox, lived in the 1600s. Uh, and she was from the nobility, and this was at a time when the Ethiopian em uh, emperor had reached out to Europeans for military support um, against uh, other uh, against neighboring uh, enemies. And the um, that uh, military support came with the gift of missionaries. In this case, uh, Roman Catholic missionaries, and so some accommodations were made so that there was the expectation 
that uh, that uh, the people in the empire would actually become Roman Catholic rather than uh, Ethiopian Orthodox, which had been a long and venerable tradition. Ethiopia, uh, Ethiopia had had Christianity in it since uh, the time of the early church, but uh, and a lot of a lot of the men uh, who were uh, part of the emperor's court and in the military were able to kind of make political accommodations and convert to Roman Catholicism. But the noble women and then the people in the countryside and the people who uh, were the monks and the nuns, uh, the, uh, the monastic uh, individuals resisted that. So Wallata Petros uh, actually fled from her husband, um, became a nun, and she was part of a resistance that eventually prevailed. Uh, so that uh, you know, like a later emperor actually said, no, we, are, we aren't going to be Roman Catholic, we're going to be Orthodox as we had been. And uh, for her, I found uh, really poignant uh, the fact that uh, even though we don't have her writings, we have writings that include conversations between nuns and other women who knew her and they talk about some of her experiences. For instance, there's a case where her she runs away to become a nun, but her um, her, her husband claims her back um, and basically abducts her, takes her back, and she's very concerned about things like uh, marital rape. And she, uh, the, but then she remembers the passage of uh, scripture uh, where Sarah is protected, and when she's taken into the court of. Abimelech and Pharaoh, and so she. We don't know what actually happened, but we get, uh, we get a woman's perspective. You know, like kind of the fear of violence and her hope and her and her prayers that God would protect her in the midst of it. I find that uh, that one very inspiring. Another one who that really that I absolutely love is a woman named Argela von Grumbach. She's a Bavarian Lutheran pamphleteer. So the first woman to kind of write and publish in her own name using the printing press. And she uh, uh, found herself uh, compelled to speak when the uh, Bavarian authorities, so Bavarian at this time um, stayed, um, uh, was aligned with the Roman church, what we might now say Roman Catholic. Uh, and they compelled a young student who was interested in the teachings of Luther, compelled him to recant and uh, and uh, refuse to have anything to do with uh, Luther's uh, teachings or writings. And she felt that his conscience had been violated. So she wrote an open letter to the faculty, challenged them to a debate. The debate was never held, but the uh, the pamphlet went into like 29,000 copies. So uh, it was just it widely circulated and she's just so fiery. And she admits uh, in one of her, uh, in, in a couple of the writings that she's aware of First Timothy, uh, the uh, injunction to remain silent. But but she she says, but I don't see any man who's up to um, uh, uh, defending this uh, student and rebuking uh, the faculty. Uh, so uh, anyway, she that would be uh, another example. But I have many examples from from the book, and my uh, co-author Marion has. Uh, has a bunch too. So we name 400 women interpreters by name. We don't tell all their stories, but we tell some of the ones that we think are most inspirational and interesting. Among these 400 women, 
uh, could you possibly shed some light on if any of them offered like hermeneutical principles, you know, kind of like guides for women who want to interpret scripture? What kind of mm-hmm. wisdom have they left for, for us today, um, especially for women, but even for men? That is a wonderful question. One of the things, uh, one of the hermeneutical principles they had is actually read the text, uh, which is <laughs> radical. And uh, one, of, one of the examples is uh, the fact that there had been a long tradition of men reading the story of Genesis 3 to say there was an ancient and treacherous alliance between woman and the devil. And sometimes in paintings, the woman, uh, the devil would, uh, the, 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 the serpent would have, this, uh, have a female face that looked exactly like Eve's. And what would happen is that the women reading it would actually take a look at, uh, that, at uh, Genesis 3 verses 15 and 16, where God <coughs> says, the Lord says, I will put enmity between the woman and the serpent, which of course they were reading as the devil, that's a whole other, but I'll put enmity. And so the, the, what they noted is that, that the women and, and the devil don't have, they're not just close buddies uh, with, a, with a treacherous alliance trying to bring about the downfall of men, but rather uh, that there is this animosity between the devil and uh, the woman. And we find this a couple of times, for instance, in Hildegard of Bingen uh, uh, reads the text of uh, Genesis 3 through Revelation 12, a story about a woman pursued by a dragon. And she says that the devil, the serpent, looked at Eve and saw that she would be the mother of all humanity, including the mother, the Messiah, uh, the, the, uh, who would become incarnate from, uh, from her offspring. And the devil conceived a terrible hatred and he decided he would pursue her and not stop until she was like drowned in the sea. And of course, this is a reading of Revelation 12. Uh, so, so kind of her argument is that part of the reason why women are so oppressed is that it's the devil. Now, she does not associate men with the devil, but rather the, um, the, the persecution and oppression that women experience is uh, inspired by the devil. So she doesn't pit women against men, but rather tries to, pit, uh, I, I, I might be over-interpreting it, but she and others sort of, uh, um, uh, I would at least draw inspiration from this and say that this is a case of, um, of women and, uh, and people of all genders making common cause against oppression. Uh, uh, and uh, we have this in Margaret Fell, co-founder of the Quakers in the 1600s, who wrote a work called Women's Speaking Justified. Now, she had been thrown in prison for her Quaker or Society of Friends activities. Uh, and uh, she knew that, uh, that in that setting, 17th century England, women were expected you know, not to speak publicly, not to preach. And she, again, she says, those who oppose a woman's speaking simply because she is a woman, if she's, are, they are of the seed of the serpent. So uh, a very kind of interesting uh, uh, point. That's one example of women doing something different with the text than uh, male counterparts. Yeah, I mean, and and that's a spectacularly 
important thing to point out, I think, because that level of hermeneutic subtlety and understanding cuts to the like you said, just read the text, right? Like it's it's much more profound and it, it it's not so trapped in the kind of linear rule-based like uh, like just I, what's the word I'm looking for? Just it just feels very un very ignorant way of reading a text is to is to just take something so on the page and not understand that the story is offering something more than just, you know, press this button, turn on light, you know, like like the text is more than a manual that it has something going on and speaks at subtle levels of relationship and understanding in the world that that's a profound intelligent useful use of a text, a tool that we all need, you know? And so to have that modeled, and I'm so glad you brought up Hildegard because she's one of my favorites. And to to be able to have that there and to see this isn't about man or woman or any of that stupidity, you know, she didn't say that to the men, but she was smart enough not to. But, you know, just like say, hey, this is something else going on here. Isn't it the spirit of kind of, enmity and hatred that you're even using when you interpret this text. <laughs> you, you know, that, that, that's a really, you're reducing the text down in this way. You know, it's, it's this great imaginative thing. And so I think the thing that strikes me in reading the book is you're fleshing out, you and, and your co-author, fleshing out the imaginative aspects of understanding and treating imagination as a hermeneutical tool that allows us to actually let the text live. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in this 30 seconds of silence. I'm struck by the first chapter. Uh, I remember when when I first got the book and I read it. That first chapter, you you talk about um, is it Melania, 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 yeah, Melania. It, it's just one of those words that like I read but don't say. Uh, yeah, and so Melania, um, her understanding you talk about in that first chapter about Melania's lost notebooks. And I felt like I was returning into kind of like a, a National Geographic, like let's put a puzzle together and, and unsolve a mystery. And you, it's grounded in good history and everything else. I was wondering if you could talk about that because you say in the chapter about uh, right before that chapter starts, you talk about using imaginative strategies because the gap, because the women have been silenced. There's this huge gaping hole in the historical record. And so then how do we fill this in uh, intelligently and well? Because we do know that women were doing things and yet they've been silenced and erased. 
So how do we get at this? And I felt like you did this great job in this book of undoing that. So I, was, I think two-part question, tell us a little bit about who Melania is and then like, what is this imaginative strategy? How did that play out in the rest of the book? Thank you. I, uh, we titled chapter one, Melania's Lost Notebooks because it's emblematic of what has happened. So Melania the Younger was a Roman aristocrat, uh, died um, 439 of the Common Era. She lived in a monastery in Jerusalem. Her grandmother, Melania the Elder, was uh, similarly um, uh, inclined toward monasticism. And what we learn, so it, it's the tricky thing that we have, that in uh, the cases of most of the women, Jewish and Christian living at this time, we only have what the men said about them and little snippets about what they said. But according to people who knew her, uh, she read scripture and she read uh, uh, Christian writings voraciously. So like she, so she's just devouring scripture and, this is, and then she would read about the lives of the saints as dessert. Uh, uh, but we, we don't have any of her words remaining or at least her written words, but uh, those who knew her said that she kept notebooks. So it's probably some sort of uh, papyrus or parchment probably sewn together um, and bound and uh, and then she would just write and we don't know what she wrote in the notebooks it said she decided how much to write every day did she just write out like favorite passages as you know some of us keep commonplace books where we write out you know things that we want to remember or did she write her own thoughts or her interpretation uh, we don't know that for certain but uh, I, but uh, uh, we do know that it's been lost. And uh, during this, the first 500 years of Christianity, we only have four women's writings that are of any substantial amount. Uh, but uh, what I just did was I read everything. So Google search isn't going to do it. One just needs to read everything. And I've been working on this for, for years. So I would just keep notes in the back of the books that I owned. Uh, but I'm looking for patterns of women's uh, women's book ownership. Uh, there are cases where we have reports where a woman will attend worship and then, uh, the, then uh, she reports that the Holy Spirit gave her something to say about the lessons that she read and people would ask her afterwards. We know very little about that, but we just get these reports. So uh, what I what we would do is look at the book ownership. We would look at, at uh, reports. Uh, sometimes the most uh, credible witnesses are actually the hostile witnesses. There was a movement called the New Prophecy, commonly called Montanism, that started around 150 of the Common Era. And uh, there, uh, the books written by these women, and we know that there are books because they, they talk about, uh, or the opponents talk about books that they wrote. Those books have been lost, whether they were deliberately destroyed or just not copied. But uh, men who were opposed to them would uh, bring out quotes that they would probably pull out of context and then refute and look how bad these women are and so forth. But that means that we've got little sayings of them. Or uh, this brilliant, uh, compelling little passage, a heresiologist. Heresiologist is a, is a dude who catalogs and says what's wrong with all the heresies, but he reports on a group of women living uh, in uh, the 300s, most likely, or uh, where a group of uh, Christians, rather, where 
women would enter, seven women dressed in white, carrying some uh, carrying lamps. And he said that this uh, that these women or this uh, community honored Eve because she was the first to eat from the tree of knowledge and that they revered the prophet Deborah and they said that women should speak. We don't know for sure that they that there was a group that did this, but this man did, uh, Epiphanius did do his research. And so he did read what he could. He interviewed whoever he could. He regard, he thought that like, this is the most awful thing anyone could do, uh, but he may have inadvertently or, or deliberately preserved a little piece of women's biblical interpretation that gave it an alternative perspective to Eve's eating of the fruit. So uh, in, in the book, there'll be times where I can say certain things with a, a fair amount of certainty. Other times we just have to enter into it imaginatively and consider the possibilities. Joy, I'm, I'm curious about if you bumped into any women who maybe we would name as, you know, contemplatives today. And that tension, right, that, you know, to this day we, we host um, in contemplative life of, of, you know, silence and action. And, and for these women in those times, you know, having, having a contemplative heartbeat, but also recognizing that the, the, the toxic silence that one is in and the, the oppressive systems under which one lives as a woman. So I'm wondering if you bumped into any women who maybe were outspoken contemplatives or contemplative activists really of their time. So Teresa Bavila, the uh, great uh, Carmelite uh, mystic, uh, she talks uh, in her um, in her interior castle about how Mary and Martha must come together, and that she's an example of someone who's both active and contemplative. She brings that together, um, the, uh, and uh, you know, kind of bringing in the traditional ideas of what Mary and Martha were. Of course, there are times where uh, where. Uh, there are, you know, like lots of uh, lots of visionary women that we uh, that I talk about in uh, the chapter on the Middle Ages. So that's uh, very. So there are Beguines, you know, these women who led a religious life and would have um, sometimes devotional experiences, and they would write their their biblical interpretation in kind of courtly language. Their prayers would be as though. God is um, kind of the language of knights and fair maidens, and sometimes they would actually flip the script so that God was the uh, the cruel, but fa the fair maiden who was cruel in love, and and that um, desire for God, you know, like it hurts so bad, um, but that's what love of God is, kind of that absence, but that yearning desire. So they use kind of that kind of language. But back to the active um, and contemplative, it's uh, sort of, um, it's, I've been thinking about the fact as I read some of the women who are supposed to live contemplative lives in convents and monasteries, it turns out sometimes they had less silence than they, than they would have desired. Sir Juana Inez de la Cruz, a Mexican nun, talks about she'd like to have more time in silence for her writing and her reading and so forth, but she's got all these administrative duties uh, to do. 
um, and you know, and kind of uh, as uh, as musical uh, arranger or you know, kind of musical director and uh, theatrical producer. She's got a lot of things to do, and she would like more silence. Uh, I think of um, uh, it, Harriet Beecher Stowe. So moving now to the 19th century, she's known for Uncle Tom's Cabin, but she also wrote a uh, series of um, little portraits of biblical women um, that she uh, looks at. And she talks about how, how challenging it is to be a mother of several children. So she uh, describes having her notebook in her apron pocket, notebook and pen. And then she has a nursing child she's holding on to and she has to make supper. And then the fishmonger is at the door and that she has to answer the door. So she's got all, thing, all these things to do. And she was an activist kind of looking for silence uh, as it were, but she's somehow getting work done in the midst of it. Not everyone had the benefit of, of uh, silence and contemplation. I'm also struck too, as as you've moved into the 19th century. I'm thinking the rest of the book how it carries over that even even people that we don't think of who who we might think of as more activist. I was trying to look for it in the book, but there was a couple of places where I felt in later in the book where you were talking about some of these modern women into the you know 19th and 20th and centuries. Hey, they're activists, but they seem to be talking on a on a contemplative level too. And and the interesting uh, the chapter that you wrote about uh, gender, class, race, uh, where that intersectionality, where that all kind of breaks down. There seems to be a lot of contemplative activists, activist contemplatives, even though they would not use that language. It seems that like there's a lot of that carried there. And do you have a particular, because you know, you're the author, could could you flesh out something in that later chapter of something art? Because I know like some of these like African-American women were not allowed, were not taught to read and yet had access to the Bible and expressed it through music or or through or oral storytelling or their or their artwork. Is there is there something there too that we could point to? So Harriet Powers uh, created these beautiful quilts that interpreted scripture. Uh, another example, not so much in art, but in activism is Maria Stewart, 19th century uh, African descent woman, uh, born, uh, born free. She was, a, uh, she, uh, uh, was an orator in Boston. And she would be an example of someone who's doing biblical interpretation in a contextual way. So when she's told to be silent, uh, she, uh, she says, well, St. Paul would certainly um, excuse us if he knew what we African-American women were going through. He would not tell us that we could not voice this. So that would be uh, an example there. Uh, other examples of uh, an example of an artist moving now back to the uh, Renaissance period, but it was Artemisia Gentileschi uh, who did these brilliant um, paintings of, uh, of uh, Judith um, beheading the oppressive uh, general uh, Holofernes. And there's even one where it's like a moment of silence where her hand is upraised and she's uh, listening for the guard. Um, because uh, Holofernes head is already in a bag being held by uh, by her servant. Uh, so uh, anyway, um, multiple times there are women who do interesting kinds of interpretation through their art, 
through their orations. Sojourner Truth gets remembered as an abolitionist. She's, um, but she's also in certain ways a proto-womanist biblical interpreter as a woman who uh, was, never became proficient in reading because that was not permitted to her, as, as you mentioned earlier found that she had trouble getting access to scripture because when she asked adults, um, you know, could you read this passage of the Bible aloud to me? Uh, then they would do that. And she said, could you repeat that passage? And instead of repeating it, they would explain it to her. And that's not what she wanted. She wanted access to the text. So she eventually enlisted children because if you ask a child, could you read that again? Then they would do that. And she came to the conclusion that God's word does speak through as revelation, but that the biblical authors also inserted some ideas of their own. You know, too, I'm thinking of the artist, uh, which one of the chapters that you you pointed out in 2019, we discovered the the woman with the blue teeth. Yes, that's spec- yes. that's spectacular. Because could you could you talk about that? I mean, that I, that flipped on her head. I, when I think of medieval manuscripts, I think of little old men in a monastery. This completely flips that, right? The nun with the uh, the nun with the blue teeth. So uh, so uh, the archaeological evidence confirmed what historians already knew from the text, because uh, because there we have all kinds of well, not all kinds of, but at least dozens of manuscripts books that were copied by nuns because they would write their uh their um you know initials or they would say you know pray for me and they would give their own name and then there might be something in the same script even if it doesn't name the woman so we knew that but uh yes in 2019 cnn and other places reported that they found uh, the archaeological remains of a nun who had this blue so it's from the uh blue uh, uh lapis lazuli um uh in her in her teeth, which suggests that she was actually uh, she was a manuscript illuminator, uh, someone doing the art of uh, in the manuscript, and she would uh, kind of uh, lick the brush to bring it to a point so that she could do that fine work. And over the course of years of doing that, it embedded itself into into her teeth. So that's, you know, like actual literal evidence uh, confirming what historians kind of already knew from the textual evidence. Yes, the nun with the blue teeth. Women were scribes in Christianity. Also in Judaism, we have lots of examples, maybe not lots, but, you know, like a dozen or more examples of women who were scribes in Yemen, in Istanbul, in uh, North Africa. And they would, we knew that the women were the ones doing the scribal work because they would kind of name it, you know, pray for me, or they would, you know, kind of, or they would give their lineage. So that was one of the ways that women were involved in the, uh, in the textual transmission, passing on the text. I love that. Um, yeah, the, the nun with the, the blue teeth, um, also because that, that stone, my, my very little knowledge of that stone, and I, I will do more research um, and study more after this, but my very little knowledge of that stone is that it, it also is, is to help the, the uh, throat chakra and opening and sharing our voice. And the fact that that, yeah, was a part of her story and in the work that she was giving to the world is really, really beautiful to me. So I, I think that what I'm interested in too is do you have a favorite 
So here we are. You've listed a bunch. Do you have a favorite or do you have one currently that's your favorite? Today, it is Jarena Lee, a uh, African-American uh, a preacher in the African Methodist Episcopal tradition. She's someone who felt uh, she was freeborn. She's in Philadelphia, which was a real center for um, Black women's preaching and oration. Uh, anyway, she felt an interior call to preach. She said it was like a fire shut up in my bones. And uh, so she went to her, she went to her pastor, her preacher, um, uh, Richard Allen, uh, and he said, well, you know, um, Quaker women preach, but not in the Methodist tradition. And she said, oh, well, I was kind of relieved because she knew it would be very hard for her to undertake preaching um, journeys. But then she, when she was asleep, she would actually dream that she saw a pulpit with an open Bible in it. Uh, and she would even uh, preach in her sleep. So she would, in her dreams, she would take a biblical text and she'd preach. And then she preached so loud that it woke her up, up everyone in the household. So it's like this thing within her that just can't stay uh, within. And then she talks about how her call was affirmed when she's attending church. Now, uh, now Pastor Richard Allen is Bishop Richard Allen. And there's a, a preacher there. Uh, and uh, she said, well, he seemed to have lost the spirit. And people kind of noticed. So she got up from her pew and began to preach. And she thought she would re be rebuked, silenced, shut down. But Bishop Richard Allen um, uh, uh, stood up and said, she came to me a number of years ago. Um, she, seen, she does have indeed have a call to preach. And that she took his authorization to go around uh, and preach. She was an itinerant preacher. And she published her autobiography uh, so that we actually have her, her voice, uh, her edited voice uh, there. Uh, th that is edited by her. Um, uh, too many times in the Middle Ages and other settings, uh, women uh, women would dictate something or write something, and then it would get edited by a male advisor. Or in certain cases, women would write something, and then the man would write a summary of it, and then the original would get discarded. But with Jarena Lee, we have her autobiography. So at this moment, she's my favorite. To uh, bring the conversation back to silence, and and you know. Kevin and Cassie, I don't know if this reminds you, uh, but uh, Joy, you're reminding me so much of the conversation we had a couple of years ago with Walter Brueggemann. And he, he wrote a book about silence, but the subtitle was God's Command to Speak Out. So the book was all about the silence that needs to be broken. And, and I see that really this is what you're celebrating as well. Again, that toxic or that negative silence where it becomes a sacred act to break that silence. Mm -hmm. and so I, I'm just wondering, you know, with your incredible knowledge of these many, many women, I mean, some of whom, are, you know, I'm familiar with, but many of whom are new to me. And, and I, you, you've mentioned uh, uh, Teresa of Avila, you mentioned Hildegard of Bingen, you know, I think of um, Julian of Norwich, Phoebe Palmer, you know, many of the women who we do know were women biblical interpreters also have a reputation as being great mystics. And when we start talking about mystics, we're kind of getting back into that place of contemplation and silence and meditation and all that. So I'm just wondering if you, off the top of your head, uh, this isn't meant to be a trick question, just out of curiosity, if there are any of these women who 
their wisdom and their voice paradoxically invites us into silence, but into a, a holy silence, not a toxic silence. Anything okay. that you can think of? I'll answer that two ways. One is, I think that just simply uh, the fact that their um, voices remain, their written voices, I think we're, we're called to listen. So I think we're invited into a kind of listening mode and not kind of like a, you know, like, like if I may use the word mansplaining mode, but there'll be times where, where, uh, where I think that uh, instead of um, someone over interpreting uh, something, just maybe listen and see what they have uh, to say to you. And then other times, I think, um, uh, like uh, answering it in a different way, Hildegard of Bingen would be an example of someone for whom we can, um, like, there, there, were, there was a time when um, a bunch of monks asked a whole bunch of questions about scripture, and she just didn't answer, and she didn't answer. And what she was doing was, first of all, she was also very busy uh, with administration, but she also was waiting to receive something. So uh, many of the medieval women, especially, but beyond that, have a sense of listening, uh, listening to God, listening uh, within, listening to other voices. And so um, from that silence and listening, then they're called to speak out. So not just say the first thing that comes to their head, but to do this kind of deep contemplative reading, prayer, and listening. I really appreciate that answer because I think I think that you really, really are on to something now. As I hear you speak, I think allowing the woman's voice, unsilencing the woman's voice stops the current narrative and allows us to hear the story fresh again. So it's it's kind of to be contemplative for a moment when you when you're in the mystical, they talk about the true knowing is when you unknow. And so hearing the woman's voice kind of say, hold on, you think you know about Eve? You know, and then Hildegard gives her spin or, oh, hold on, you think it's this? You know, or hold on, women can't speak? Uh, well, I'm having a whole bunch of like dreams and visions that God really wants me to. I have fire in my bones. You, you know, there's a sense that the story is like, hold on, be quiet, listen, <laughs> So letting a woman's voice come forward, stopping the toxic silence allows for a, a re-engagement with this positive, really unknow, open listen. I, I, so I think you're saying that there's almost a modeling that they did. Like they didn't just speak just to speak. They listened and modeled for us away. So now it's time for us to let them speak so that we can imitate them and model, listen. So Joy, one thing on this podcast is we love poetry. And I'm wondering if you happen to have a poem or a prayer of yours or of someone else's that you might like to share with us. Well, I thought I would share a poem that I wrote uh, and it's about uh, Canterbury Cathedral in England entitled Credo or the Backpacker's Tale. Is it easier to believe in God in Canterbury, do you think? where every winding street leads to the cathedral. Outside, the April morning sun shines on pilgrims, French, German, Japanese. 
inside there is a vastness and the cool smell of stone. Small is the martyr entombed beneath the altar, small the choir boys and all the company of heaven. There is a darkness too with cathedrals, dark like God who silent hides his face from us. Yet above me, in quiet shadowed rafters, even a small thing, a nested bird, a creature seeking God, may dare to break the silence and sing. Thank you. That's beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, thank you. This has been a lovely conversation. Yeah, thank you for coming. Thank you for your work. I know you're going to keep going, but I'm going to say keep going because it's just important work that needs to be done and so helpful. So thank you so much. And uh, thank you for your work encouraging uh, the gift of silence in people. Thank you, Joy. We are encountering silence. I'm Kevin Johnson. To learn more about me, please visit kevinmichaeljohnson.com. I'm Carl McCormick. Find out about my work at carlmccoleman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. My website is cassidyhall.com. Please visit the podcast's website at encounteringsilence.com. There you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on this podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters. Our circle of supporters help tremendously in sharing our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all too noisy world. Thank you.